As we come now to God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther in chapter 5? It's no surprise by now. We've been in Esther for a few weeks if you've been with us. In Esther chapter 5, if you can find Psalms in the Old Testament, just turn to the left a little bit and you'll bump into it. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, as we walk now with Esther through these paths of real life with real issues, would you help us to walk by the light of the truth of your word? Would you help us to see you to believe you and to follow you. Guide us now by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll read just these first eight verses here in uh, Esther chapter 5. We'll, read the, we'll leave the rest of it for next week. And in fact, I think I may back up just a little bit and catch the end of chapter 4 again just for a bit of context. Let's start in Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, And hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is if I've found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, 
Let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This is God's word. So I know this is difficult if we're coming here in the middle of this. I know it's hard now to remember over the weeks now what's going on. At this point in the drama of Esther, we can feel some of the tension building. We saw a few weeks ago in chapter 3 the major conflict of the story of Esther, which is that uh, there's been a decree throughout the entire land of Persia that all the Jews would be destroyed. In essence, an ancient holocaust. So then in chapter 4, last week, Esther then uh, and Mordecai resolve to do something as far as they're able within their power to to try uh, to stop this complete annihilation. And so now we get here to chapter 5, and and we see Esther then coming before the king to try to do something to stop the decree at risk of her own life. Because if you come into the throne room of the king without specifically being called, even if you're the queen, he can have you killed. You can imagine then what that might have felt like for Esther. The fear the night before. If you ever have something you know the next day that you're not looking forward to, how you stay up and let the wheels turn, wondering how it will go. So Esther then comes into the king's throne room to ask the king to save her people, which he does not know is her people yet, but to save the Jews. Now, what is surprising about this section is that as Esther comes in, at least here, there is no mention of the Jewish decree yet at all. Instead, for us, the reader, the situation just kind of hangs in the air. And Esther, at the end of this section, says, we've had a feast now. What, Esther, what do you want? And she says, tomorrow, another feast, I'll tell you then. And so what we have here is, if, if you're a musical person, I know many of you are musical, we've got the function of, as, of a, a fermata. Do you know what that is? It looks like a half circle with a dot in the middle. And if you play music or, or sing music, it's, it's, a, it's a pause in, in the singing, that you're supposed to hold that note longer than you usually would. So a lot of times when we're singing the Christmas song, uh, We Three Kings, don't make me sing it. How do I get to the We Three Kings Warrior in our Marion Gifts? We travel far. When it gets to the O part, oh, and sometimes churches hold that way long. Star, there's a fermata there often that that O is held for a bit. We get that same function here that that uh, that there's a. There's a hold in the air that Esther now has come with the specific purpose to ask the king to save the people, but she doesn't tell him that yet. Uh, in fact, um, in verse 7, in the, in the Hebrew of this, then Esther answered, my, my translation says, my wish and my request is, there's, but there's no is in the Hebrew there. She just says, my wish and my request 
dot, dot, dot. But then she doesn't tell him. She says, come to a feast and, and then I'll tell you. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to banquets. Now, why does Esther do this? Perhaps uh, Esther was, was trying to be strategic or clever about her approach to the king. Uh, perhaps Esther was trying to butter the king up a little bit first. Or perhaps Esther just got scared, was too nervous to deal with it at that moment. Uh, whatever was her intention, the author doesn't tell us. We can't really peer into the mind of Esther. The, but the author also, in writing this, is telling us with particular intention as, as he puts these events together, too. He's building suspense in the telling of this story. Now, Esther is still grounded in real events, there's real people. This is real history. In fact, uh, we have archaeological uh, sources for some of these things in the Persian city of Persepolis, uh, which I had to look this up, is in modern-day Iran, uh, from about the 400s BC, which is exactly the time of Esther. Uh, there's been found a stone carving or relief of, of one of the kings of that period, and he's sitting on his throne, and in the carving you can see people coming before him to make requests. And what's interesting about this particular stone carving is behind the king is standing a soldier, and he's completely armed, with a bow over his back, a dagger at his side, a sword in one hand, and an axe in the other. It runs exactly in accord with what's going on in Esther. You can feel the real danger as she comes before the king's throne. These are based in real historical events, and yet at the same time, the author is telling these events in a literary style. There's intricate plot and complex characters, and there's drama being built. And, and not all of Scripture is told this way, but Esther is, is told this way. And personally, just as a lover of good stories, I just think this is brilliant. I love it. I could read Esther all day long. Uh, so as the author here, and God, is telling this true story so masterfully, we need to take a pause in the place where he takes a pause and to try to draw out his purposes in telling the story in this way. So in this fermata, in this grand pause, the hold, what would the author have to show us here? So we're going to take a look then in the rest of the time to look at the theme of favor. Um, it's only mentioned a couple of times in this particular section, but it's central to the idea. Some translations uh, translate it with the word pleased or accepted or welcomed. But you can see it in verse 2. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor. And favor, then, of the king is the basis of her reception into the throne room. 
And then in verse 8, then, if I found favor in the sight of the king, we see favor again as the basis of her request then that the king join her feast. We'll see later chapters that, uh, that, all, that favor is the basis of all Esther's future requests. When, when she asks him to save the Jews and to revoke the, the decree in chapter 8, all of this is based in the king's favor. And we see that the king acts on the basis of his favor. So in chapter 1, Vashti, the original queen, lost favor with the king, and so he removes her. You see, the king's advisors had favor with him, and so he listened to their advice. He saw that Esther, early on, had obtained favor with the king, and so he crowns her as queen. And Haman had advanced in favor of the king, and so the king gives him authority. And then Haman uses that authority to do according to his favor, which has evil ends, has the destruction of the Jews in mind, but he also acts according to his own favor. In other words, favor here is incredibly important. And we see this in the rest of the Bible. Proverbs talks about this and saying some things what we, I think, intuitively also know it to be true, but it's still helpful to hear it. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Favor is better than silver or gold. Favor is better than even great wealth. Now, of course, we know this doesn't mean that we should do absolutely anything to get favor. It does not mean that we're to compromise the truth of God or the truth of the Bible or, or God's holiness to get favor. And it does not uh, mean we're advocate, advocating uh, for, for flattery and for yes men and lapdogs and sweet talkers. The Bible has some strong words against those things. But it does say that favor is incredibly valuable. You'll remember in chapter 3 that Haman, when he wanted to destroy the Jews, pledged 10,000 talents of silver. But that's a mere pile of pennies in comparison to favor with the king. Um, favor then matters, especially when it's in relation to the king. Proverbs says this in chapter 19, verse 12. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. If the king's favor is set against you, it's like a lion roaring at you, but if the king's favor is with you, it's as refreshing as dew. And we see this sort of idea all over the Bible. Joseph, for example, uh, had favor with the Pharaoh, and so he was set over Pharaoh's household and, and eventually was set over all of Egypt. Uh, we see also Ruth had favor with Boaz, and so he feeds her family. 
and eventually marries her, and they become uh, the great-grandparents of King David. And now Esther here has favor with King Ahasuerus, so we see just a glimpse of hope in this because there is incredible power in the favor of the king. Life or death literally hangs on it. As the king says, you can have up to half my kingdom. So the entire rest of the story of Esther then hinges upon the favor of the king. Now, there's some trouble here for us because the text does not say that Esther just had favor with the king. If you look in verse 2, it says when uh, the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor with the king. The Hebrew there is literally that Esther lifted up favor with the king. So that brings a question then in our mind. If, the king, if Esther can win the king's favor, can she also lose the king's favor? Is the whole outcome of this story really dependent upon something that seems so fickle? Because the king is really no different than you or me. I mean, we know that people come in and out of favor. We see this even in our own relationships. Perhaps uh, even even you, you have some sense of felt security in the very strongest or closest relationships, but even then, that favor can change according to time or circumstance, or whether or not you've put the dishes in the dishwasher correctly. And perhaps then we feel this not only in our relationship to each other, but especially in our relationship to God. We have a sense that, 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 that even if I, I have favor with God, there might be fear that I will lose favor with God. And in that, that I will see the growl of a lion. And so we come into the throne room of God with trembling. That's a frightful thought. It brings up questions in our mind. And so while we, at, we might have the question in our, in our head, does God have favor with me? And that's a, that's a good question. Uh, an even more important question is, can I lose God's favor? And the answer to that, at least in a sense, is, is yes. Yes, God's favor can be lost. Years ago, uh, Laura and I went to a church uh, called Grace. 
It's a good name for a church. Grace seems to be pretty important. I guess they didn't have any creeks, big or small, nearby, so uh, Grace EPC. And, and I had a friend that went to that church with us named Andy Fell. I asked him if I could say his name here. He said it was okay. And, and every time he would come into church, there was a greeter who, I guess he was uh, trying to be clever, he would say, hey, it's Andy Fell from Grace. That's a, a bad uh, pun on a very disturbing line to fall from grace or to fall from favor. But that idea is in the Bible. Turn to Galatians in chapter 5. Galatians in chapter 5, I'll read, starting in verse 1, just a few verses here to roll us up in. Galatians 5, verse 1, for freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That line gives me goosebumps at the end. You've fallen away from grace. In other words, you've fallen out of favor with God. That's a chilling line. It's this sort of idea to fall from grace that would have made Esther shiver as she approaches the throne. The wondering Will I receive favor and he'll raise his scepter? Or have I fallen from favor and will the soldier raise his axe? How much more is at stake then when it comes to God? Now, to be clear here, please listen. Paul is not necessarily saying here that we can, a Christian can lose his salvation in Jesus. When God adopts people into his family, he does not unadopt them. That's not a category in Scripture. And Jesus tells us that all of the sheep are in his Father's hand and no one can snatch them out of his hand. So true believers are really secure in his care. So breathe. That helps me to breathe. So then what does Paul mean when he talks about falling from grace or from favor here in Galatians? You'll notice then in verse 4 where he discusses this, he's talking about a particular context. He says, you're severed from Christ. 
you who would be justified by the law. To be justified by the law. In other words, the harder a person tries to earn God's favor or to justify himself, the further he gets away from the favor of God. We must be justified or counted righteous by Jesus. It is not something we can do ourselves or that we can lift up favor from God ourselves. Uh, Here he talks specifically about uh, circumcision, but it's much more than that. He said, if you add uh, your obedience to circumcision, that's of no advantage to you. It does not add favor with God. If you add, we could add other things in there. If If you add more money into the offering plate, that's of no advantage to you. It does not add favor with God. If you put on more smiles, more productivity, more activism, it does not add more favor with God. And if you try to make yourself more interesting, more beautiful, more helpful, more likable. It does not add more favor with God. Those things might lift up the favor of King Ahasuerus or lift up the favor of you or me, but this does not add favor with God. Now, all of this is not to say that righteous living, obedience, holiness is, is, is unimportant. We know that these things matter. They're vital to us. We talked about human responsibility last week. But if the basis of your righteousness is yourself, you've missed it. And you have fallen from grace. If you've come into the throne room of God by your own name, you've missed it and you've fallen from the favor of God. We know that favor of God is only through Jesus, the righteous one who brings his righteousness to his people, so we rest then on Jesus, the entire rest of the Bible story, then hinges upon the favor of God in Jesus. Now, this brings us to the final question, and it's the biggest one, I think. The final question is this. Why would God give his favor? Why would God give his favor to me? It's really a question of his, his motive here. We know in Esther, the motives of, of the people are often hidden. It's very much like life. We can't quite peer into their mind and see exactly why they've done anything. But if, if, we, if we ask, why did the king give Esther his favor? Uh, we're not told, but we could give guesses. Uh, maybe it's because he thinks she's pretty or funny or, or smart or gentle or she encourages him somehow. Or maybe it's because the king's just in a good mood. 
or, or, or had, had a really great piece of pizza. I guess he's Persian, so it's like a kebab or something that was really just, I'm feeling good, Esther, whatever you want, half the kingdom, boy, these kebabs are great. In the end, though, it's because the king just liked her in some way. That's usually the source of human favor. But what if I am unlikable? Because I often am. I do things at times that others don't like, things that are wrong, things that I myself don't even like, and I wonder why I've done them. And even if I succeed in lifting up another one's favor, the weight of trying to maintain that favor is just too much to bear. How can I sustain that? Because the Bible calls us sinners. Ones who have violated each other, ourselves, and violated God And I think we all know this is true deep down. So why would God give sinners favor? The answer to that question is so simple that it's easy to miss it or to forget it. We heard it already just after our confession of sin from Romans chapter 5 that God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gives sinners favor because he loves. The basis of God's favor is not in us. The basis of his favor is in him. It's in his love. I need to hear that. And it's true. It's in God's word. I I often turn to this particular section in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can turn there if you wish. This is often life for me. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The context here is God is speaking to his people Israel. This is also true of his people Israel. Uh, the church, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the Lord says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Mm. To be treasured. That's lovely. It's true. But why? Why are we treasured? Let's go on. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
In other words, he says here, God loves not because you're bigger in number, or we could add, because you're stronger, lovelier, faster, better. But God loves because he loves. Because that's who he is. Because that's how he is. And it was his love that brought his people out of Egypt. It is his love that will bring these uh, Jews in Persia out of destruction. And it is his love that continues to sustain his people now. That says some pretty profound things about our God that he would love like this. Because that is so different from the powers of the world around us. I mean, we see in King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, and Esther, a poor example of a king under God. He's often impulsive and self-serving and misguided and childish. I mean, he too is a sinner in need of the favor of God. But if we see in even this king any good at all in the impact of his good favor on the kingdom, how much more, how much better the impact would be the favor of a better king, of a holy king, of a good king, of a king who loves just because he is love. How much more would a king like this who loves produce in us a desire to draw near to his throne? How much more would it build in us courage to stand in his presence? And how much more would it give us confidence to ask him for grace in our time of need? Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 7, the last place we'll go here before we end. This is in the middle then of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Christian, there is no need to try to earn the favor of God. There's no use trying to be strategic or manipulative or clever in our appeal. 
or trying to time out when you request it, just like trying to find the right moment with your parents to ask if you can go out on Friday night or to set a big feast for the king to prepare him. But instead, Jesus says, come. Come into my throne room. Ask, seek, knock, and don't give up on these because God gives out of his favor toward us and he favors out of his love for us in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Hmm. Lord, sometimes these things are so foreign to our minds because they're so different from the way that we interact with each other. Would you help us to look to you for favor, not trying to earn it on ourselves? Would you help us as we believe to trust that your love is secure? Would you help us to come before your throne with confidence that is only found in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your favor toward us, even though it is undeserved. And for this, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.